Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Very nice. Thank you. What I've never I've never started an interview like that before. I really I really like it. I felt like I should start reading your bio like as the music settled settled in. <laughs> so, hello everyone. This is Marla Hughes. Today I'm so excited to have on the show Reverend Bill McDonald. Bill is an author and award-winning poet, international motivational speaker, artist, film advisor, a veteran advocate, a Vietnam War veteran, where he received the Distinguished Flying Cross and the Purple Heart. Bill has had three near-death experiences, the first one at age eight. His second NDE happened in India, and his third experience happened during open-heart surgery in 2011. He has had profound spiritually transformative experiences since a very young boy, including lifelong intuitions and visions. His multiple near-death experiences, including meeting great, included meeting great masters who explained the purpose of life and his personal mission. Gifted with precognition, his unique perspective as a reverend bridges religion and spirituality. His legacy is love. Welcome to the program, Bill. Yeah, hey, I want to meet that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? It's always great when you hear someone read a bio yeah, about about you. It's like, wow. And your bio is much more in depth than that. And it will be in the show notes for for my listeners. There's there's a lot more, a lot more to it. So, Bill, I'm so excited to have you here today. And I love that your legacy is love. And I know that that you you've said that the story of your life is how it began when you learned about the essence of love and forgiveness. So can you talk a little bit about this? And um, I think it started when you had your NDE as an as an eight-year-old. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Okay, I was very, very sick, uh, to put it mildly. I was, I had developed the mumps and I kept going to school and everything until they finally sent me home. But I also developed at the same time I had the mumps, I had strep throat and then I got pneumonia, both lungs filled up. And then I got a kidney disease. It kind of cascaded down because nobody was sending me to a doctor. So just it, once you get one of those viruses or bacteria going in your body, it, it just cascades. Right. And so I was a situation where I was in school and I was like 15 pounds underweight. I looked like a POW. I was, I was urinating blood. I was had pain, you know, cause of the kidneys, I was dizzy. Finally, the school teacher 
sent me to the nurse. They used to have nurses at school back then. And uh, she goes, my God, you're sick. Go home. Tell your mother. Well, if your mother sends you to school sick. I mean, she's got to know you're sick, right? Right. And my head's all big from the mumps. So I get home and uh, days go by. I'm still, nobody's taking me to a doctor. Finally, my aunt comes over and says, oh, my God. You know, to my mother, call a doctor. So the doctor comes and an hour later, I'm in the car because nobody nobody called ambulances back in the 1950s. <laughs> you just drove somebody. So they drove me to uh, San Jose from Sunnyvale, and I went to the county hospital. The county hospital, they told my parents, they're like, he's going to make it. You're bringing him in too late. He's got all this stuff wrong with him, right? You know, plus he's anemic, and he's, you know, he's hardly breathing. His lungs are filled up with fluids. I mean, all kinds of stuff. And they strapped me on a gurney, and my parents say goodbye. I'm eight years old, never been away from home. Then I'm wheeled down a hall and then I'm wheeled outside because they took me out of the main building because I needed to be in isolation, you know, kind of like quarantine. So I'm getting, I'm learning, I learned at a very early age to deal with current quarantine. So this staying home now is not a big deal. But uh, so I go into quarantine and they strip me down and, I'm, and they, they sit me down on a metal chair and put, put it backwards, I'm leaning against it, and they bring out these big, long needles, and they start shoving them into my back, going into my lungs, and no anesthesia, nobody holding my hand, nobody telling me what's going on, and then they're sucking all these fluids. The fluids look like applesauce. I don't I haven't told too many people, but it looked like it was, it was thick like applesauce coming up, Yeah. and the lungs were just, I could hardly breathe, and so they, they did as much as they could do it once, one time, and then they put me in this bed all by myself. I'm isolation. Everybody's got masks on, you know, and they're all got, and, uh, and there I am laying in bed, the lights are off and I'm alone for the first time in my life. And in the darkness, feeling very unloved, unwanted, you know, just like, wow, what's happening. All of a sudden I find myself sitting up, and then I realized that, wait a minute, I'm sitting up then, who's underneath me? <laughs> I was like, oh, there's the body, but that's not me. And even at eight years old, I know that's not me. That's just the body. And the body's laying there, lifeless. And the room just gets lighter and lighter and lighter and lighter. And, and pretty soon it's very bright. And I'm feeling at the same time, my spinal cord is feeling, it's like I'm plugged into a recharger. I feel like a cell phone plugged in getting recharged. It's just, you know, it's recharging me. The spine is just going, at the time I didn't understand that. Now I realize the kundalini energy is just cooking. But then I realized, wait a minute, that's the spine, that's in the body. So I'm feeling it on the spiritual level even because I'm not attached to that down there. So that was the odd part about it was I'm feeling all these neat things in the spine, but I'm not attached to the body. So I'm actually feeling it in spirit. And then I'm feeling great love. And I think anybody's had an experience no matter what age, what religion, where they're coming from, how they, if they were in an accident or disease, makes no difference. They all talk about being loved. Yes. And honestly, all of us that have had that experience really have a limited vocabulary to express it. 
because I've tried. I tell people, imagine a million mothers loving you at the same time, oh. right? Giving you oh, right? beautiful. But I, I don't know how else to describe it because yeah, like, there I was, a little anxiety ridden, going there all by myself, scared. I don't know if I was scared so much as like, wow, what's happening? Well, maybe I was scared. I never admitted it, and feeling rejected, lost. My family mm-hmm. dumped me there. They left, right? I was made a ward of the county. Basically, the county was in charge of me. And I only saw them, actually, I'll get back to this part, but I only saw them about 15 minutes a week on Sunday, and they'd visit me. And they didn't let my sisters and brothers in, so I just saw my stepfather and my mother. They'd come by, boom, 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 and they'd leave. So, And for the first two weeks, I only saw them once because I was in isolation. And my stepdad came in, and he had to have all the, the gown, the mask, and the stuff over his shoes and gloves and everything. So. Anyway, so there I am laying on the bed, or my body is laying on the bed. I am no longer a part of any of that. I'm, I'm sitting up on a cloud, basically. I, it's like there's light under me now. It's like, like where am I at? Am I standing? Am I sitting? Were you scared? No, not at all. It's the opposite. And yeah. I don't really remember having a body at that point i i'm a consciousness i'm seeing everything around me i'm experiencing but i don't i don't remember looking down or seeing hands and everything i i see a body back there but i'm not there anymore i'm in this white cocoon it's about the only thing i think a white cocoon wrapped in love mm. and uh if i was a turkey i was in the oven getting baked that's the way it was man it was just like you know, man, cook me anyway. So then, I I see this panorama, you know, just like you see in the movies where they got somebody's having some kind of vision and there's just stuff happening in the, in the in the white light in the cloud, like a like a drive-in movie kind of like you know. And I'm seeing all these future scenes from my life. Nobody's telling me this is future scenes from your life. I just know that's future scenes from my life. I I, I know it. I just yeah okay. They give me a, a preview. And I don't know how long it lasted. It lasted long enough for me to see pretty much every major thing that happened in my life from the age eight to just before 59 years of age. So it was like, wow. You know, so I'm seeing myself in war in helicopters. Turns out it's Vietnam later on. I'm seeing myself marrying my wife that I met about 10 years later. <laughs> oh, it went for me. Okay. I, I saw the first couple of houses I bought. I saw myself with children. I saw myself at combat. I saw myself working. I saw all these different major things in my life. That's like when people say, well, when you were in Vietnam, you were blown up, you were shot up, you know, and you, you crashed in your helicopter. You know, Weren't you ever scared? And I go, no, I've already seen it. I already know how to end. I mean, anybody can be a hero if you know the ending of the story, right? You know, if you're watching a scary movie when you're a kid, you go, oh, my God, you know, the, oh, there's a creature from the Black Lagoon. What's it gonna? But if you've already seen the movie, you know when it comes, hey, you're going to get through this, right? So it was kind of like the same thing. I knew I was going to get through it. And I also know that 
in these future days ahead of me, and I would have future days ahead of me, that I would always have this presence with me, this connection, this love, which I felt at different levels before, but this was just like really awakening it. Not a new thing, but certainly one of more impactful presentation. I, I knew I went to Nam. I was looked after. I knew. Did Did you ever talk about it to anyone? I mean, you were eight years old. That is so young. Hospital people don't want to hear about it. Right. I mean, they'll tell you, believe in the tooth fairy, believe in Santa Claus, believe in the Easter bunny, but angels, near-death experiences, come on. It's like the kids, kids out of it. So that went on for a long time. And why these visions are going on, tumbling through the panorama is two numbers. It's like 59, and then we flip over and it looked like 29, 59, 29. If you look at a two, it could look like a five. So I was kind of playing with that, 59, 29. At the time, I didn't know. I thought, well, maybe I'm supposed to die at 29, and maybe I don't. Maybe I die at 59. And Wow, you were thinking that. That's yeah, I was thinking that. Eight, eight years old, I'm thinking that, because why would it be showed two numbers? 29, 59, right? So, so I didn't know anything about the Saturn thing. You know, where's your Saturn? Saturn comes every 29, 59 years, and I didn't know anything about that. And I was thinking, well, this must be about death. And, and what's interesting, because I'll skip ahead a little bit here, what's interesting is when I had uh, one of my heart surgeries. I, I went in there and told the doctor, uh, I go, how come, how come, oh, look, I'm a vegetarian. I, I became a vegetarian. As soon as I left the hospital, I became a vegetarian. I knew I had to change my diet. I was the only one in my family a vegetarian. In the 1950s, there's nothing to eat anywhere. Trust me, it was, there's no special menus. Right. So I became a vegetarian. I never did. I didn't do the drugs. I didn't do the cigarettes. I didn't do the alcohol. Uh, I didn't do caffeine. I didn't do chocolate. I didn't. Do, I, I was clean gene. I mean, I was going. I got to take care of myself. So when I'm in the doctor telling the doctor at three or four or five weeks, whatever it was, before my 59th birthday, I'm having this heart failure situation, and I'm telling the doctor, I go on. Actually, I'm complaining to the doctor. I go, "What is the deal, man?" I just told him the same story I told you. I, you know, I've, I've lived clean. I, you know, did none of that stuff. And he looks at me and he says, "Well, with your genetic makeup." I would have guessed you'd been dead by 29 oh my. And, and not, and not going on 59 in a few weeks. Wow. So I'm going 29. Had I not changed my diet and engaged in uh, all kinds of negative things physically, that would have been my fate. And I'll tell you why, if you believe in astrology, I was born March 16th, 1946 at St. Mary's help hospital in San Francisco. In 1955, 56, 57, something like that, I'm in a school in Sunnyvale, and I got a young guy in there, you know, classmate, and we're talking. Oh, you got we oh, you got the same birthday, we're same hospital, same day, within an hour or so each, right? His mother and my mother were roommates in the maternity <laughs> ward, and we were, you know, next to each other in the wow. you know behind the glass and the little things. And we found that out at that and go, wow, that's interesting, right? My name is William Hector McDonald Jr. He was Paul H. O'Brien Jr. 
So it, it was almost the same, right. both, on, both juniors, both, you know, H is a middle name. And so when I was at, at this uh, visiting the doctor and he's telling me that, you know, 59 and all that stuff, and I'm thinking about my friend, I'm going, wow, am I going to make it, right? Because just, just a few weeks before that, I found out from our people who were doing the reunion committee because they said, who do you want to meet at the reunion coming up? I said, oh, Paul O'Brien, right? I guess how he's doing. He died. Oh, my goodness. So his astrology chart and mine were almost identical. He drank, he smoked, he gambled, he boozed. I mean, he did everything, right? He lived a fast, high life. Nice guy, but fast, right? And I'm looking at that thinking, now, if I'd followed that same course, I'd been dead with him. Mm -hmm. So maybe there was something to do with astrology. Right. Well, I'm a big fan of astrology. Um, that's and that's a whole a whole different topic. But so I know um, that you went on to serve in the war and you talk about that you knew that that you needed to be there. Obviously, it was a very controversial war, but you you said in in a um, interview I was listening to, intention is what is behind the action while you are there. Can you can you just elaborate on that? And also the story I'd love for you to tell when you're in Vietnam is about saving the children. That, that story is one of those decisions that I made. Had I not listened to myself, had I not listened to the inner voice and had those visions when I was young, I would, I'd be in jail to this day because I was charged with uh, mutiny for disobeying a direct order. And what happened was we got a new pilot. It was a major and he was West Point graduate. He let you know, everything's by the book. I'm in charge and I'm going to charge. There's only, there's two officers and two enlisted men on a helicopter. There's only four of us. You want to be in charge? Great. You're in charge of three guys. Who cares? That's the attitude. That you know, the crew chief. Uh, you know, I was a crew chief, Dorgan. That's what we you know, look. Man, we're all, we don't salute on the flight line. We don't say sir. It's just everybody's on the same ship, literally on the same aircraft. But this guy come over from Germany, and he was, you know, I'm in charge. You're going to do exactly what I tell you. I said, okay, whew, this guy's got a lot to learn, right? And he didn't know the country, and he didn't listen to the to the other pilot who was a war officer, and he, war officers trying to tell him. You know, sir, you either got to get down on the deck and fly above the grass and the trees, or you got to get way up there. You can't fly at several hundred feet because you're an open target. Didn't want to listen. So he's flying around, I don't know, four or 500 feet or something, just a nice open target flying slow because he's trying to look at maps to see a river and this. He's trying to navigate by seeing where he's going. Right. He didn't know the terrain. Instead of just telling his co-pilot, you've been here before, take me to so-and-so. Now he's trying to figure it out. So he looks down in an area which, which was a free fire zone. Now, for those civilians out there, a free fire zone sounds like a funny thing. It's odd. What is a free fire zone? In Vietnam, and I'm assuming this is the same way in the present wars, you have certain areas where there's not supposed to be anybody friendly on the ground. In other words, we don't have our troops down here. And if anybody's carrying weapons or moving around, they're considered an enemy. So you don't have to call in to get permission to fire. In the rest of the Vietnam area, 
when we flow over. Uh, somebody's shooting at me, right? Like, this guy shoot. I can't fire back. My pilot's got to call Saigon. Saigon gets said, well, where are you at? Oh, okay, just a minute. Let me get back to you. Four or five minutes later, they get back to you. Okay, you can fire back. Well, we're already shot down. I'm sorry. You know, it's like, so in the real world, you didn't bother to call in. If you valued your own life, you fired back. But technically, that was a non-free fire zone, so it's restricted. But I figure if somebody's shooting at me, I'm going to shoot at him, right? Right. So where we are in this free fire zone means if anybody's out carrying weapons, they're fair game. So this, this new pilot, this major, looks down there and he sees a formation. I should have included them already. Formation marching down this road in black pajamas. They got a guy in the front, you know, all black. And it looks like they're carrying weapons on their shoulders. You know, like yeah, from up there, it looked like weapons. I see where he was coming from. It looked like troop movement in the jungle, even down this little dirt road out of, out of a little hamlet. And uh, he tells me, he goes, Mac, Mac, you know, McDonald, Mac, uh, get on your 60 machine gun there and, uh, and, and fire on those guys. There's an enemy down there. And I goes, no, I seen this already when I was a kid. Eight years. No, that's, that's not, it's, I knew that this ain't it. I mean, my hand's like frozen. I can't even move my fingers if I wanted to. I mean, my body is actually not reacting. My body's like stone. It ain't moving. And I'm telling them, no, sir. That's not what you think it is. No, sir. I'm not firing. And so I get belittled and beat up and, you know, on the, on the, on the headphones because he's in the front. And, uh, and I'm told that if I disobey direct order, he's going to have me personally court-martialed and I'll be in jail or, you know, firing squad or whatever. And I said, you do whatever you got to do. I'm not firing. So he says, okay. So he turns the aircraft around the other direction. So the other door gunner facing out the other way is looking at him. And he tells my door gunner, and I wish I could remember the guy's name. Cause it, now there's a guy that's brave because he doesn't have the visions or the intuition I do. Right. He's trusted me. And he goes, sir, he says, I've flown with McDonald long enough that if he says something, I believe it. I refuse to fire. So anytime that you have two or more soldiers refuse their direct order, that's a charge in mutiny. It's punishable by firing squad or life in jail. If you got a little leniency, maybe you get 25, 30 years. Now, had I been wrong at that point, we wouldn't be having this conversation because I would be in Fort Leavenworth my whole life from 21 years old, I was 21 at the time, I think, from 21 to 74, I would have been behind bars. Why? Because I didn't shoot. Think about all the crimes out there and all the people that done all these terrible things running loose, right? And I would have been in jail for refusing a direct order. So finally, this going back and forth and the pilot, the other pilot goes, the co-pilot goes, hey, why don't we just go down and take a look? I, so I suggested as well. Why don't we go out and take a look? I got my machine gun. If it is what you says it is, I'll fire. Now realize, I had an M60 machine gun that fires 750 rounds a minute. They're big rounds. They're like 7.62 millimeter. You know, a little 22 shell down there. We're talking big stuff, right? 750 rounds a minute. There's about 34, 35 down there. People. I would have shredded them. In, in a minute, that minute, couldn't have missed, you know. 
So we pull up. I said, get down close, make a, make a pass. So we go down and we, we pull over just about a 7,500 feet or whatever. And then I, I could almost, I was imagining what his face looked like because all I had was the back of his helmet, right? <laughs> so I couldn't see his face. But I imagine about that time it turned white because he saw what I saw. And that was a Catholic priest in a black room leading all these village children to the community vegetable garden. And all they had was rows of hoes and rakes and shovels on their shoulders. Oh my and gosh. All little kids of different age. Some were teenagers, some were little boys, girls. And they were going to the vegetable garden for work. And, and it got dead silent in the helicopter. <laughs> but from that day forward, that officer was my friend. He I treated bet. me greatly. Wow. And he treated everybody with respect. And he, and he was so nice to the crew members, he became the best officer in the company. So his first week there was a baptism for him that could have been the ruination of his life. Now think about this. Mm -hmm. I could have said, hey, look, I'm facing a firing squad or going to jail. All I got to do is pull this trigger. If it ain't what it is, I'm following orders. It's his right. fault, right? He ordered me. Right. But I didn't want to play that game. I'm thinking, no, I'm not going to hide behind that. It didn't feel right, and I didn't do it. You also can't follow every order that you're given. At some point in time, you're a human being, and you have to follow divine impulses, what I call divine impulses. So that decision, had I made it, and I would have killed those kids, I would have not been the same person I am today. It would have obviously changed my whole personality and everything else. I would say that would have been a bad day. For every oh, and the ripple effect, like we had talked and about earlier, that aircraft and their parents and their and their siblings and their spouses, and then all the people on the ground, all those families that were involved, and all the anger and hate that would have come from that. Yeah, it would have had a huge ripple effect. Wow. Let's move on a bit because actually our time is like going really fast here. I wanted you to just talk a little bit about, you've had all these experiences and I love, I have a very soft place in my heart for veterans for, for many different reasons. And um, you learned so much there and then you went on to more near death experiences. And tell me about um, when people don't, you know, they read your book, they don't believe anything you say, or they don't believe in any religion or, just just comment a little bit on what you words of wisdom for the world from what you've learned with all of your amazing experiences. First off, I appreciate I appreciate people that have an analytical mind. Yes, and they use wisdom based technology and science to figure things out. Got no problem with people questioning. I got no problem with people that are, you know, well. I don't know if I believe you or not, you know, they, they, they leave it at that. That's okay. Yeah. But there are trolls out there that they haven't watched your video. They haven't read your book, but they just send nasty remarks. But what's good, what's happening now is this new group of young souls coming in. Well, actually I call them young souls because they're young, but in essence, they're really old souls. Yes. I don't know if there really is a young soul anymore. But these new 
new generations, the new millennials. It, it started probably about 1990s, 80s, 90s, but 2000s. These kids are, are wise in so many ways. And spiritually, if you really could see inside them and see the light, and I'm, I'm saying this, and, and you'll understand, maybe but other people are going to go, what is he talking about? They're literally more, there's more light in them. Yes. They're, if we're light bulbs, you know, me and you are 120 watts. These kids are coming in 200 plus watts, you know. And of course, unfortunately, we got some people out there, and political people that are still refrigerator lights, you know, you know 15 watts. But we're all t- we're all one, so you, it's hard to criticize anybody. We're all here, you know. I'm rooting for everybody. Come on, let's let's go, let's roll. But this new generation gives me great hope that as bad as we're making it for them, we're giving them trillions of dollars of debt to inherit. We destroyed the planet uh, in many different ways, polluted, and the, but in spite of all that, this generation that's going to live the next 80 to 100 years they're going to find ways they're going to find solutions and they're not giving up yeah it's interesting that you bring up um this this new group of uh the young coming in and like you said around 1980s I, I had an interview with PMH Atwater and then also Leslie Lupo talks about, about these children and, and PMH was talking about how the premise is that they, they are looking at us as a mirror, kind of like to tell us a lot of this hasn't worked and we're not going to do it anymore. You know, and um, I I know some people our generation take offense to that, but I think it's beautiful. It's it's an awakening. I think it's a really strong awakening. Yeah, I, uh, I, I am a fully accord to what you say. In fact, I, I talked to her at the IONS conference uh, uh, in uh, this last summer, where I was a I was a keynote speaker and she was speaking and. What a lovely lady. Just says, yeah, I love it. she's great. Lovely lady. Appreciate it. It was, it was really nice that she made me feel welcome there. So, but I really do believe that we're in a, I wouldn't call it a revolution. I'd call it an evolution. It's yes. Evolutionary, you know, the burns, burn, burn people, right? Bernie people, they're in a revolution. And I'm going, <laughs> the burners, burners, right? they're friends <laughs> of mine. And I'm going, it wouldn't be better to have an evolution, yeah. evolution. So, I should get a bumper sticker made. Evolution, not revolution. Anyway. Yes. But yes. we are moving forward. And when we learn to listen to these children, I mean, really listen to them. There's this generation. Talk about, they don't know that there was this black racial thing in this country and Mexicans and Asians were treated, Bill. Maybe they learned something about Asians now because there's a lot of hatred going on in that, unfortunately. But that's new information from them. They didn't, they don't, my grandkids, they got friends. They don't say, oh, I got a, a black friend, Hispanic friend. I got an Indian friend. Got, right. It's like, that does that never gets into the, the thing. It's, I got a friend and a story, right? Yes. And I'm going, you know, whether they're gay, not gay, 
Exactly. The whole gender and the whole family dynamic, you know, two women, someone by themselves, you know, a guy, you know, it's all, it's just, it's all changing. And I think it, I don't just think, I know that it's, it brings about what, what we're talking about, universal love, universal oneness. We're all in this together. We're all here to love one another and to help one another. Well, we need to wrap it up. Unfortunately, um, is there is there anything that well, I know? There's a lot we didn't talk about. Yeah. But is is there anything at the end of this interview that you would like to share before we before we wrap it up? I think people have to realize that each of us are no less important to the whole. Each of us is like a piece of the uh, jigsaw puzzle, right? Yeah. If I took a piece of that jigsaw puzzle and put it in my pocket, you couldn't finish that picture. You get done, it's got a hole in it someplace, right? You know, well, some people got to be the border. Some people got to be the flowers in that picture. Some people got to be blue and green. But every piece of that jigsaw puzzle has to be there to make the whole. <laughs> and so in this life that we got, everybody serves a purpose. Even people that you don't like serve a purpose because there's some people out there you go, oh, you know, yeah, they're doing bad. You know what? They're teaching other people about love and forgiveness and they're making people become heroes when they fight them. I mean, there's there's a purpose. There really is a purpose to the whole unfolding of this whole thing. It's not happenstance. It's not accidental. It's not a random rolling of the dice. It's impossible to be random. But everything that in our, that's in our lives collectively as a group, a country, or individually, we have manifested at some level. Yes. There are no victims. There's some people that come into your life. I know I lost, uh, I lost two brothers when I was very young. Let's see, 1947, one died. No, 48, one died. One died in 49 or 50. So I lost two brothers, uh, and I've, I've lost... Uh, all my parents, my uncles, my grandmothers, aunts, mm. you know, my father, everybody, you know. Um, so every time somebody leaves, instead of remembering all the stuff that happened bad, I always look for the best of people. And I don't wait for them to die first. So when somebody's out there and they're doing something that I don't agree with, I try to find things about that person that I like and appreciate. doesn't mean I agree with what they're doing. It doesn't mean I... I want to be around them. Doesn't mean I like them, but I do love them. Yes. And I don't hate anybody, nobody. And I don't wish ill will on anybody. So if we live our lives where we look at why we're here, which is the real question here, why are we here? To love and to serve. And actually, you can just love and serve together. Just to love, that's the same thing. But that's why we're here. And you don't have to invent a cure to ca for cancer or the virus here. You don't have to, you know, world peace. You don't have to, you know, be a doctor, lawyer, Indian chief. You don't have to be a leader. You can just be a darn good parent or grandparent. You could just be a great neighbor, a friend when somebody needs it. There's a thousand million ways to serve. No small good deed ever went, you know, uh, to waste. So as long as each of us is adding another piece to the puzzle, our piece is important. 
And if we go to the grocery store and you know how terrible it is right now for the people working there. And if, and if we're patient and we give them kindness and, and silent prayer and ask for them to be blessed so they don't get sick, that's huge. I don't think people fully understand and appreciate the power of prayer and visualization. Love is the greatest weapon of all. It conquers all. It destroys your enemies. If you, just like Israelis and the Arabs, they've been fighting for what? Two, three, four, five thousand years now. But if they'd learned to love each other, one generation just says, let's bury the hatchet, right? It would just take one side loving. Right. Somebody loves you. It's hard to fight back. It's hard to keep an argument going if the other person just loves you. I love when you say also that you never know when that person is an angel in disguise. Oh, my God. We'll talk about next time. We'll talk about some stories there. Well, we've got to wrap it up. But, Bill, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on today. And if people want to find you, I know you're in a lot of different places. Where should, where should they where should they go? Actually, now that we got the virus uh, quarantine, I found right here on my computer. <laughs> but if they go to my website, which is www.revrevbillmcdonald, no dot, no nothing, just revbillmcdonald.com. Great. And your book, we'll have your books also, your beautiful books on one our show notes. One is The Warrior. I'm actually listening to that right now in my audio. Yes. That's in audio. It's in digital download and it's uh, printed. And then you got the Alchemy of a Warrior's Heart. Alchemy of a Warrior's Heart. Oh, I love that title. Oh, this, this, this book, the back of the book is kind of cool. If you can see my little hat there. Yes. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Alchemy of Warrior's Heart was written after Warrior, which was my autobiography, which goes from birth to 2004. And then so much happened after that book. Uh, multiple trips to India, two near-death experiences, additional ones. Right. Miracles in India, meeting amazing, amazing gurus and Hindus up in the mountains of the Himalayas and everything. Uh, supernatural stuff. And I thought that deserves another book. So, and it deserves another interview. Yeah. <laughs> During this quarantine, I'm working on another book and a little, some stories because I have new stories all the time. I mean, I, mm -hmm. are you going to run out of stories? No, I'm never going to run out of stories because it's, it's ongoing. There's new experiences all the time. But stories only take you so far. You inspire people. They get up, they get dressed, they're inspired, they want to go to work. And now if you don't tell them anything else, they don't know where to go to work. So they want to work on themselves. Well, I got their attention with my videos. I got their attention with these first two books. But where do they want to go? Right. Why are we here? What am I supposed to do? So I thought this next book would be stories, but then connecting some dots for some people. Talk about other things I've, I've learned things i've learned things about my body i've learned things about my spirit i've learned things about what's important and what's not that's the interesting thing as you get older you realize you know it's not so important it wasn't so important i didn't get that promotion it wasn't so important that my kid didn't get you know that certain award or something or recognition right it's in the end 
it only matters if there's love. Yes. And as I always say when I end the broadcast, basically is when you end this life, it's not who did you love because it's 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 about who you love, not about who loves you because who loves you can be influenced by gifts, money, prestige. Oh, everybody loves the movie star, a famous person. They love Kobe Bryant. But who do you love? Who did you love? Yes. What did you give? Who did you listen to? How did you serve humanity? What did you understand? Did you spend all your time seeking to be understood? Or did you understand somebody else and listen to them? Right. So. Love that. Well, thank you so much. And... And we'll definitely be talking again soon. All right. God bless. Okay. Namaste, God which bless. I hope will take over the handshake. So for now. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Namaste. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.